Meet Emily. She's dealing with hair loss, sluggishness, and constipation. Now, Emily is someone who is really into healthy living, and she does a ton of reading and research on all types of health topics. She tried changing her diet, eating more protein, more greens, and even taking adrenal supplements, but not much changed. In fact, her constipation actually got worse. After following my work on thyroid, she realized that her symptoms are all probably related and was convinced that it was her thyroid and her thyroid was slow. She went to see her primary care doctor and asked her to run all of the thyroid markers. The doctor was actually very open and ran everything that she requested, including TSH, total and free T4, total and free T3, reverse T3, and thyroid antibodies. The results came back and her doctor said everything is in range and it was not her issue. But Emily knew that there is a difference between lab ranges and optimal ranges. And so thankfully, she asked her doctors for copies of the results. She saw all her numbers, and they were all actually right on the border and just outside of that optimal range. She wanted to figure out what this meant and if her results could be contributing to all of her symptoms. I knew that in addition to these, we also had to explore a few other areas to really evaluate her thyroid and see if it was connected to her mystery. Every year, Thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. I talk about thyroid a lot on the show, but just looking at all the numbers, even if we look at all the numbers like the TSH, T4, T3, is still not completely multifaceted. And so I'm really excited to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Biamonte, back on the show. Dr. Biamonte, welcome back. I am so excited to have you. Thank you, Mina. I'm actually excited to talk about this information because this is something that most people, including endocrinologists, have no data on at all. So it's going to be very enlightening for people. Yes, absolutely. You know, this approach, um, like you were saying, it's very, it's a little different, but it's very overlooked um, and it's very important. And this is really looking at thyroid from the perspective of nutrients. So tell us a little bit about how this is all connected. Well, as a preface, let me say that you and I both probably for many years have had many people come to our practices who are taking armor thyroid or some type of synthetic thyroid, Mm -hmm. and they'll usually say that they don't feel quite right. Um, In many cases, they say they do feel a little better having gone on the medication, but something is still not right. And the reason why this is is because simply looking at the amount of thyroid hormone in your bloodstream is really only, whether it's uh, made by your thyroid or taken as as a medicine, is only half the story. The second half of the story is how well your body metabolizes or utilizes the thyroid hormones. This is um, an area that is not something the medical people are familiar with. When we talk about thyroid hormone utilization, we have to shift the arena into the area of nutrition and nutritional physiology or biochemistry because 
the, the function of your body using thyroid hormone is mostly based on nutrients. It's not based on medications, not based on anything other than nutrients. And if you're, the nutrients involved are out of balance, it, you don't get the full response. And the best way we have found to monitor this is not with blood work, but it's actually by having the person take their body temperatures. Because when you take your body temperature, you're seeing the end result of your thyroid metabolism, which is to produce heat and energy. The ideal temperature should be above 98.2. Um, it's acceptable if they're between 97.8 and 98.2. But if anyone is below 97.8, just based on the temperature alone, I would declare that they were hypothyroid. So how this, how this works in the body is, um, is interesting. We're going we're gonna to skip the whole production of thyroid hormone. The production of thyroid hormone involves a whole array of nutrients, but we're going to skip that for now because we're going we're gonna to be talking to people who are also taking thyroid medication. So they're swallowing a tablet, the hormone is absorbing into their blood, and then it goes to the cells. Now, thyroid hormone, like many hormones, principally target your kidneys and your liver. That's where most of the receptor sites are to activate the hormone. And once the hormone gets to, the, the hormone enters your cells through the electron transport chain, which is something most of us probably learned in, in uh, high school chemistry and now have forgotten about. Yep. But the hormone enters through the electron transport chain and it's dependent on nutrients in order for it to be utilized. The, the most important are calcium and potassium. In the famous book, Guyton's Physiology, Guyton himself was quoted as saying, in some way not totally understood, calcium acts as a governor or antagonist to thyroid hormone, and potassium acts as a synergist. Potassium sensitizes your cells to the effect of thyroid hormone. So if you take a, a, a test, particularly the uh, hair analysis, which is the one that you and I favor, the hair analysis gives you a great look at the tissue levels of the minerals. This is not the same as a blood test. If, if someone takes a blood test and looks at their ratio of calcium to potassium, they're only looking at that in the blood and that's what's being transported. That's not what uh, is representing your cellular storage or the amount of the element that you're going to find in those tissues that are being hit by the thyroid hormone. So that's the first thing, misunderstanding that we, let's get that off the table. So the Calcium and potassium act as regulators. The calcium is a governor, which slows down the sensitivity of your tissues to the thyroid hormone so you don't become hyperthyroid. And the potassium is the synergist with the hormone. The, the potassium allows the hormone to enter the cell and to metabolize and do its job, which prevents you from becoming hypothyroid. I think that another interesting thing is like you were saying, calcium, potassium are going to be very different in your tissues than they're going to be in your blood. And the answer isn't necessarily just to take more potassium because there's so many different other organs that govern those nutrient levels. So, and I know we're going to get into that as well. Well, yes. And that not only that, and the, the kind of the obvious thing is your kidneys regulate the potassium in the body. And so if someone has a kidney problem, when they're not able to hold on to their potassium, that's an issue. Your posterior pituitary releases antidiuretic hormone, which targets your kidneys and it tells your kidneys to retain potassium. So we have those concerns. We also have 
if, uh, to run down this list, we have the adrenal cortex, which produces uh, corticoid steroids and glucose-retaining ret hormones, glucocorticoids. These also aid in the retention of potassium in your cells. But not only do we have these hormones, we have other elements. As an example, zinc is, uh, as an element, also encourages potassium storage in your cells, as does magnesium. So magnesium and zinc can be a synergist with potassium to help, to help its retention, while copper and calcium would act against that. Copper, copper tends to block potassium. It blocks zinc and it encourages calcium uh, to store. So someone who's copper toxic or has elevated copper, that copper is automatically antagonizing their potassium and their zinc. Yeah, that's so good to know. And I think a lot of people may know that zinc is important for the conversion of T4 to T3 because that's something that's talked about quite often. But this connection of zinc actually helping the potassium is not really something that I think a lot of people realize. So that's great to know. Yes, this is true. So we have, when we look at this, we have the calcium to potassium ratio in someone's tissues. And then superimposed on that, we have the copper-zinc ratio, which are going to help the thyroid hormone be utilized. And then, of course, as you said, zinc is involved in the um, conversion of the uh, base material into the hormone. And then you also have, when you look at Wilson syndrome, um, which is the ailment where people are making too much reverse T3 or T4, we, we have the zinc and selenium also involved in that condition. So there's further involvement in, with the minerals right there. So if someone was to do a hair test, they're not looking at just their level of calcium potassium, but it's all about the relativity, right? And the connection. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what types of ratios would be considered optimal versus what would happen if a ratio was low versus high, just so people have a better understanding? Well, yeah, the ideal ratio of uh, sodium to potassium in your hair is generally two and a half to one. So if you see someone's sodium is higher than two and a half to one, uh, the sodium is too dominant. That's typically stress pattern going on. Mm -hmm. And that indicates their adrenals are probably being really prodded. When it comes to the calcium to potassium ratio, it's, it's four to one. So four parts of calcium to one part potassium is what you what your ratio should be. Now, typically people who come to me who have thyroid problems, their calcium potassium ratio is uh, sometimes 20, 30, 40, or 50. Yep. Or even higher when they if they're they're really in trouble with their thyroid. Yeah, I've definitely seen that as well. So in those situations, if someone has a high calcium to potassium ratio, what are some of the things that you would look at to address that? And how also do you find that it relates to their blood levels in terms of their TSH and T4, T3? Is there any indication that something could be off if they have this very high ratio, do you find? No, typically not. Or if it is, it's on the low side of normal or the high side of normal, depending on which which level we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So no, the blood. It, this all this could be going on, and there could be very little indication in the blood of this happening. And um, typically, the first thing you you would want to look at is the person's nervous system dominance when they have this, because if the person's thyroid is very slow, the odds are is they're probably a slow oxidizer or a slow metabolizer, and there you're going to see their calcium to phosphorus ratio 
very high. The, the, the correct calcium phosphorus ratio, which sets your nervous system dominance, is um, like about 2.6 to 1, 2.6 calcium to 1 phosphorus. But these people often have their calcium phosphorus ratios above, above 6, sometimes above 10. So in order to, to try to innervate the thyroid, you need to correct that ratio so that their nervous system is in that better balance. And the nervous system is there actually helping you to activate the thyroid activity. Now, luckily, uh, the lab, uh, Trace Elements Inc., makes supplements based on these patterns that they've seen for years. So it makes it very easy for the practitioner to uh, recommend these. And you would start by recommending the, the supplement, which helps rebalance that calcium-phosphorus ratio. Then you take a look at their potassium retention, and you need to figure out why. As you said earlier, it's not just as simple as taking potassium, because if that was the problem, the body probably would have regulated or balanced it themselves. Very often, these people have elevated copper, which is suppressing the potassium. They may have a kidney issue. Their adrenals may also be underactive. You know, many years ago, there was a Dr. Paul Eck, who um, was the man who started Analytical Research Labs, which is another lab that does hair analysis. And Eck wrote a book about the fast and slow oxidizers. This is probably 25, 30 years ago. And in the book, he depicted the thyroid gland as being the fuel pump in the body and the adrenal glands as being the spark plugs. So there is a, a definite, I, I don't know how many people remember what spark plugs are, but there, <laughs> there is a, there's a definite relationship between yes. <laughs> adrenal and the thyroid gland. Because keep in mind that if nothing else, the adrenal glands also help regulate your tissue level of potassium. So they could be implicated in this uh, calcium to potassium ratio problem that we're discussing. Yeah. And oftentimes there are, because when people have thyroid issues, you know, I would say at least 50%, but probably a lot more, there's going to be an adrenal issue in there together, which like you said, is all related to the minerals. Um, you know, that's partly also why sometimes people don't feel well or completely better when they go on thyroid medicine because their thyroid might be supported, but everything else isn't. Now, I just want to go back for a second to what you were saying about the calcium phosphorus ratio and the nervous system regulation. And you mentioned supplements that Trace Elements makes. But is that the only way that you're addressing that? Or are you also looking at other things to support the downregulation of the nervous system, um, you know, say from mind-body or from any other perspective? You definitely have to look at everything because you don't know what it's going to be. The principal way to support that, it would be with the trace elements products. That would be your base. But you've got to look at every possibility. And that's where being skilled in interpreting blood work from a nutritional standpoint comes in. Because you can find where the body's misregulating the potassium by studying the person's blood work from a nutritional standpoint. You can, you can see whether or not it's their posterior pituitary that's not properly signaling the, kidney, the kidneys. You could, you could see if it's kidneys directly. You can, you can see if, if there's a lot of these issues going on that we spoke about in the beginning like with, with the adrenal cortex. Because regulating potassium is simply, there's a lot more to it than just eating a banana. For sure. So you've got to understand that. And you've got to be able to look at every angle. There's also, is in some rare occasions, you'll find that the person's lifestyle is involved. You can find that they're maybe taking some kind of medication, which causes them to lose large amounts of potassium in their urine 
and that has now slowed their thyroid down. You can find maybe they have a drug, some kind of a drug or alcohol problem that's causing them to eliminate potassium from their system. They, they could be engaged in something, some kind of lifestyle or occupation where they sweat tremendously and they're losing so much potassium from their sweat that it's actually affecting their thyroid. I had that happen once or twice in the time I've been practicing. So there are these issues. You have to look at everything. Otherwise, you're, you don't know if you're going to catch it or not. And so with the levels, um, and if we're talking about the calcium to phosphorus, just back to that, I know that phosphorus, depending on if you're testing pubic hair versus scalp hair, and depending on what types of soaps or shampoos you're using, it could sometimes vary a little bit. So what do you usually tell people to try to get the most accurate phosphorus level so that there's no external contamination? Well, the key is, as you just mentioned, it's if there's a lot of, let's say, soap happening, that's a problem because that soap is going to cause the phosphorus readings to be off the chart. So you want to make sure that they don't uh, shampoo their hair excessively with soap when they're doing the test. That's kind of a key thing when they send their sample in. Yeah, I always tell people and I tell them, I know this is going to sound kind of funny, but, you know, for a lot of women who color their hair, especially if it's like a lightning agent, like a bleach, you are not going to get the most accurate results. So I tell them, well, you can just use pubic hair. Then I tell them, but don't use soap on it. Maybe just use a little bit of shampoo. And they always laugh at me, (laughs) but, you know, it's important so that we get an accurate reading. Pubic hair is notoriously higher in phosphorus. And one of the reasons why is not because the phosphorus has an affinity for the pubic hair. It's because when people shower or bathe, the soap goes there and the soap is not as um, thoroughly washed off as it is with the head hair. Yep. Yeah. Cause I definitely do see higher levels in general. And that's why we say use shampoo and rinse really well because trace elements doesn't wash the hair. There's some labs that wash the hair, but they, I know purposely don't so that they can really maintain everything that was, you know, on the hair. Yeah. The reason the, the, the Dr. Watts and I had this conversation many times that they specifically don't because he feels that it would adversely affect the sodium and potassium level. Now, on the other hand, Doctor's Data, which is another lab that's been used for quite a long time to do hair testing, they do wash the hair, and they feel washing the hair is correct to handle uh, the environmental toxins that might accumulate on the outside of the hair shift. But you'll notice if you use Doctor's Data for a while, you're going to see people with much lower sodium-potassium levels overall on an average than you will with the samples that uh, trace elements collects. So there's, there's rhyme and reason, and you have to understand which lab you're using and what they're doing with the sample. Yeah. So that's why, like you said, it's so important to work with someone that really knows not just how to read it, but how to properly interpret it and put everything into context. This is very true. because it, And also that you have to have like someone like you or not, you or I have had years of experience with this. For us, it's, it's kind of easy. When you're dealing with a new person um, who's who's doing this type of work, you really want to make sure that if they don't have the experience that they are utilizing the tutorials that the lab gives you, because the lab generally will, will guide you in the correct direction. They don't expect all of their practitioners to have gone to all the seminars and listened to all the lectures and, and whatnot, but they easily can uh, contact the lab and get the right guidance in terms of how to interpret your sample if you have any 
concerned that they may not have all the experience in the world on doing that. Yeah. And it's so nice that all the labs do provide that. I remember when I first started my practice, I used to call Dr. Watts, who's you know the owner of Trace Elements. And I think I talked to him once a week <laughs> to just try to like pick his brain and, you know, really learn the patterns. So, and it was so, so helpful. I've known Dr. Watts since 1984, probably. We've had many conversations on the phone, just like you. When I was first starting out, I I called him about every, probably every other day for a few years until um, the conversation kind of shift more to what is this and to how is it that way? That was, that was very interesting because I had a little more knowledge and interpretation of blood work than he did. So we were able to share some different viewpoints and he's just, as far as I'm concerned, he's the world's authority on trace minerals. There isn't anybody who knows more about the function of trace minerals than he does. Back to the calcium-potassium ratio then. We talked about the calcium-phosphorus and some of the things that affects the phosphorus. We talked about things that can affect the potassium and the body potentially maybe utilizing it at a different rate or excreting it. But what about calcium? Because it's really common to see very high levels of calcium with maybe sometimes a normal level of potassium. What are some of the things that would cause that calcium to accumulate in the tissues? Generally speaking, the position that Dr. Watts has is that anyone who has a calcium in their hair probably above 90 or 100 milligrams percent to some degree has hyperparathyroidism. That's kind of a, a functional opinion, if you want to use that term. And he's not basing that on doing a blood test and finding the parathyroid hormone elevated. He's basing that on the function. So his, the supplementation that he, he gives is aimed at balancing that parathyroid function. But you can also get the same phenomena from insulin. Um, insulin and IGF-1 in excess both pump calcium ions into your cells. You can also have that uh, effect from magnesium deficiency, where because magnesium isn't there to keep calcium solubilized, the calcium is uh, dropping out of solution and it's being stored in your soft tissues, which is also how arteriosclerosis begins. So you can, there's a few other reasons. Now, um, people sometimes uh, can, eat a, can eat a diet, which is very insulin producing and at the same time high in calcium and low in magnesium and potassium. And uh, from that viewpoint, that type of lifestyle will cause that ratio to shift. If the person doesn't get a lot of magnesium in their diet, which I think years ago when we did a, we did a survey, we found magnesium was the number one deficiency in people, especially in elderly people, because magnesium is depleted as you get older. And in and, and, uh, younger people, magnesium is depleted by sugar and alcohol. And stress. And stress, yeah. I was just going to say, right. It, magnesium is used like four times the rate when you're under stress. So absolutely. And, you know, when you're talking about the typical standard American diet, right, what are you going to have? Well, you're going to have high insulin. You're going to have foods that are naturally higher in calcium because some of them are just more processed types of foods. Yeah, it all contributes. So usually someone who's got some experience with this can sit down and interview the patient and they can get a good sense as to how it's how it became this way and then reverse it. It usually takes about a year, I found, and a, a lot of these, um, what Dr. Watts used to call super slow metabolizers, it would take about a year 
to reverse the pattern. The thing you've got to be careful about is that the person is not taking some medication which as a side effect has this, has this effect on the minerals. Often, because in the, in the studies that they do, when they watch these people for long periods of time on the medication, you can look at the side effects and very often the side of, they won't come out and say it's hypothyroidism, but they'll name quite a few of the symptoms. They won't say hypothyroidism because when they test the person's blood, their thyroid is, is in the normal range but yet the person is manifesting all the symptoms of low thyroid. So if you look at the medication they're on and you look at the, the, uh, the, the contraindications or perhaps the uh, side effects, you'll see a lot of the side effects add up to the profile of someone who's hypothyroid. As an example, as far as nutrients, though, that could do this, um, vitamin D in excess can cause the person's calcium to elevate as, as will copper. Right. And I was going to say, actually, when you're talking that, you know, so many people don't realize and take vitamin D without K and that's how that can happen. Cause K is going to be that navigator that tells calcium where to go. Where to go. That's correct. And so if someone then has this elevated calcium to potassium ratio and you're evaluating, you know, some of these underlying reasons and you've ruled out medications and you've ruled out, you know, excessive sweating and some of those potential lifestyle things that can make someone lose potassium, what are some potential interventions to help to support this? And I understand everyone is different, but, you know, maybe if we can give some typical examples of what people may be taking in terms of supplements. If they have the kind of the standard profile where you're going to see the calcium and magnesium really elevated and their copper elevated and the zinc is low and the sodium and potassium is low, if we leave it at that for now, mm -hmm. we'd want to put them on the products from trace elements, which change the, the metabolic rate from slow to more normal. So that, that would be their multivitamin called Parapac which is designed to speed up the slow metabolizer. Then we want to take a look at their magnesium levels. And if the magnesium is very high, that could indicate uh, improper utilization of magnesium. So in that case, vitamin B6 usually helps to lower the magnesium by getting the body to utilize it better. Now, what if they have both high calcium and high magnesium, but when you look at the ratio, the calcium is still higher than magnesium? In addition to B6, would you still do magnesium? Uh, perhaps. See, that's an insulin pattern. The high calcium to magnesium is someone who's, ex who's excreting insulin on a hair trigger. So normally you would give B6, but you would also look at their um, elements like vanadium and chromium that balance insulin. And they may need to do a program to adjust that ratio and their blood sugar. Often those people will be, when you, when you speak to them, they'll, they'll practically be telling you that they, uh, they eat and fall asleep, or if they don't eat, they're hysterical, or they have some type of blood sugar, obvious blood sugar problem. So yes, so that, that ratio needs to be attended to. And also, also very often, the, a really high calcium person somewhere along the line has gotten somewhat depleted of vitamin B1. And B1 is one of the fastest ways I know of to bring the calcium down in the hair by getting it utilized. There's some people that I know have used EDTA as a chelating agent for the calcium. And I think that could be, that's, that could be warranted sometimes, but because it's a chelating agent, it chelates everything. It's not discernible. It's not discerning in what it's doing. 
I tend to go more for the use of B1. You just have to be careful because if the person takes excessive B1 and you're not monitoring them, it will literally pull the calcium right out of their teeth. So you've got to be careful with it. But if, if you give them the right amount of B1 and you're monitoring them, the B1 will really help lower the calcium. Then you have to look at their zinc-copper ratio. And again, if the zinc is low, vitamin B6, again, along with zinc, would be warranted. Mm-hmm. And quick question, just back to the B1. Are you monitoring them by doing hair tests every month or two, or are you doing like a micronutrient test for B1 levels just to confirm that it is in fact low or not getting too high? Definitely by repeating the hair test at the appropriate time. But I, I also have a urine test that we have the patients do at home that measures the calcium, the ionized calcium in their urine. So if we see it going too high, we know that the calcium is getting ripped out of their out of their system. So we know to lower the B1. Um, and then you mentioned with the zinc to copper, if that's off, then you're doing B6 and you're doing zinc. Wait, and you remember the ZMC product that Trace, Trace Elements has? I do. Yes, that's the manganese, the vitamin C, and the zinc, right? And and, the, and molybdenum. I don't know if it still has molybdenum. It did at one time. Okay. Yeah, because molybdenum is a big one for copper, but I don't know if it still does. I haven't used it in a while. Um, but those are, those are the nutrients, though. Zinc, manganese, vitamin C, molybdenum would help bring down the copper. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the fact that copper stores in your lymph system. A lot of the, see, copper is mobilized by the thymus gland and then used in your immune system to kind of like electrocute microorganisms. So it ends up going to your lymph system. So the the game then becomes getting the copper to move from your lymph system uh, through the lymph drainage into your colon where you would poop it out. So sometimes you need to do something to support their lymph system if the copper is really elevated and not moving. Also, copper we know stores in the liver in high amounts. So that's an, another area where you'd be concerned is to make sure the liver is not overloaded with copper. And much of, much of that is because of potassium, because of, uh, tissue potassium is depleted by copper. I have, always, I have always leaned towards, and this is not something that Dr. Watts necessarily says, but I've always leaned towards using a potassium orotate, an orotate form, to try to get the tissue level up. Most most of the practitioners, and I think in most of his seminars, he just refers to a chelated potassium with, with vitamin A, because vitamin A is also a synergist of potassium. Vitamin A helps encourage the storage of potassium. But I, I've tended to use um, the potassium orotate, and I think I've gotten a little bit of a better result than just using the chelate. That's great. Now, if someone has a pattern where they have an elevated calcium to potassium ratio, but they don't have high copper, then would you still use zinc um, or would you still kind of stick to the B6, the B1 and possibly magnesium if needed? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because there's these patterns that we're talking about while they're very common and usually what you see are not what you see every single time. So you do have to always customize it for what the patient's got going on. And sometimes because copper is involved in, in making that protein uh, mesh that is on your bone that the calcium sticks to, there are times where cal- uh, copper actually will help lower the calcium by getting the calcium to get back on the bone and store on the bone where it's supposed to. So, yeah. So if they're copper deficient, then you know it's really important that they then have the copper and then not use extra zinc because that's just going to make them more copper deficient. 
Yeah, that's and copper deficiency is a whole story unto itself, which which shocked the hell out of people. The first thing I would say about copper deficiency is it very closely mimics vitamin C deficiency, with one exception. With copper deficiency, you can have aneurysm, and you can have very aggressive cancers develop as a result of copper deficiency. Wow. So it's not a joke. Is copper deficiency something you see often? I don't see it as much, or really, I don't think I've ever seen. One out of 10. Yeah. Mm. One out of 10. But there was, there was a year, I think you guys can, you can look this up. There was a year where they had removed copper from the turkey feed. And all, all of these turkeys, this one particular year, started dying of aneurysms in advance of Thanksgiving. And when Thanksgiving came around, turkeys were not as abundant as normal. Oh my goodness. When, wow. When they figured that out, they put the copper back in the turkey feed. Wow. That's amazing and scary at the same time. Yeah, true. So you mentioned that it typically takes about a year to get these minerals more in balance, um, especially with this really high calcium to potassium type of ratio. So in terms of how people feel, do you find that as you're removing the excess calcium and helping with potassium, do they feel worse before they feel better or do they start to feel better um, you know, slowly and then kind of get better within a year? What do you see? Generally, they feel better per their body temperatures. I haven't found that people necessarily feel better per the mineral chart shifting. It's when their temperatures shift that they really start to notice a difference. And in order to accomplish that too, they have to be aware of certain dietary pitfalls. Like the, as you probably know from trace elements, the, some of the standard things that they do in the diet is they remove dairy products from the diet in the person who's really high because they're not utilizing the calcium. The calcium is just accumulating in the tissues. So they remove the dairy and they also have the person stay away from vegetables, which come from the Brassica family because the Brassica family of vegetables are high in a chemical called thiocyanates which actually inhibit your thyroid function. And this is why so many people down south develop goiters is because the, the traditional southern diet, particularly among blacks in the south, is very high in these um, thiocyanate foods. If you look at the list, it reads like a soul food menu. And these, these elements can cause goiter and then block your thyroid. So it's important that they pay some attention to the diet and also as long as uh, in addition to taking the supplements and understand what they're doing. Yeah. And then when do you typically see body temperatures go up after someone's been on this mineral correcting protocol? Usually three months. Okay. But I'm talking about the super slow people that is, have their calciums that they're where they're well above 120, sometimes even 200. It takes it usually takes about three months before that starts to shift. And that's providing they're doing all the right things. They're, why I, I talk about the diet again, because it's not a point of just taking the pills and then eating any way you want. You've got to really make sure that you avoid foods that are really the, the, the worst type, which we're, we mentioned calcium, the thiocyanate foods, but just junk foods in general with those all those bad fats are like a, a buzz bomb in your body trying to correct this. And also GMO foods need to be avoided. I'm completely convinced that if a person is trying to get their act together as far as this goes, they have to avoid GMO foods because we don't know fully how GMO foods affect the body. It's an experiment that's been forced on the 
on the on the population of consuming these foods. No one really knows how they how they work, and what we do know about how they work is not good. It's all very bad. It's so bad that the GMO foods have been banned throughout Europe. Yeah, and we definitely talk a lot about that on the show and just the importance of diet as our foundation and natural foods and clean foods, foods that come from the earth that aren't, you know, changed or modified in any way. And so that has to be the foundation. Like you said, you can take vitamins. I would say you can take vitamins until they come out of your nose, right? It's not going to do as much if you're not doing everything else. Yeah, and there's a, there are a lot of people are becoming very hip to this, you know, so it's something something everyone's learning and everyone should apply. For sure. Like this is so interesting. And I think it's so important for people to know this other kind of view and other ways to look at the thyroid because, you know, while of course looking at all of the thyroid markers and if everything is tested and everything is really checked, um, to the optimal ranges, chances are if someone's on thyroid medicine, they're feeling well, you know, there are things that are going on. Their doctor is just not looking at it through the right lens or, you know, looking at the right numbers. But there are cases, like you're saying, where people do check all of their, the TSH, the total T4 and T3, the free T4, T3, the reverse, the antibodies, and it really is all perfect. And not just lab ranges, but optimal ranges, you know, and in those cases, looking at the minerals and looking at the effect of, um, you know, how the thyroid and adrenals are connected and the kidneys and, you know, everything else we talked about, I think is so important. So and always, always remember that the blood work is 50% of what you need to know. Because because once you look at the person's body temperature, if their temperature is consistently below 97.8, they are hypothyroid. I don't care what the blood work says. They're functionally hypothyroid. And that can be referenced by the book written by Dr. Broda Barnes many years ago called Hypothyroidism, the Unsuspected Illness, where this, is, this was the first book that really laid all this out. So if the patient has their temperature below 97.8 consistently, now it's time to bring in an expert like you or myself who's going to look at all these other factors that the endocrinologist knows nothing about in order to remedy the other 50% of what's wrong with the person's thyroid. What do you think about people who start out with a lower body temperature in the morning, but then it goes up throughout the day? Um, so say they might be at like a 96 even, you know, in the morning, and then by the end of the day, they're at like a 98.2. That's pretty normal. Every, just about anybody, anyone will have their temperature the lowest in the morning, and it'll gradually get better as the day goes on. It's similar to your urine pH, it's the most acid in the morning. And as the day goes on, it becomes more alkaline. Right, but do you think that's a big spread though? Like a 96 to then a 98 point something? Yeah, that is a big spread. I haven't really, what I would assume is if someone starts out with 96 in the morning, the highest they'll go is 97.5. Right, right. Yeah. I would, that would be unusual um, for them to have their temperature elevate so much at night. That could be a person with a chronic virus. Yep. Uh, it's, I have someone like that and it's, we're not exactly sure, uh, might be virus, but also potentially mold, underlying mold issues. That could be if they get out of the house and they're, out there or they're away from the mold toxins, their temperature would tend to improve. So yeah, in a case that's, in a case like that, that's another thing to look for is environmental illnesses or chronic viruses will also suppress your thyroid. It's interesting that Epstein-Barr virus particularly targets your thyroid gland. Yeah. 
So, and also you look for tox mercury toxicity is another thing. People with mercury toxicity are notorious for having all these low thyroid symptoms because mercury was actually found to store in the thyroid gland itself. Absolutely. And it's such a trigger for Hashimoto's, which is then going to destroy your thyroid, at least to some degree, which will cause further downregulation of it. Yes. There's a good overall picture of, uh, I think at this point, we, we have a good overall picture of all the concerns and considerations. Yeah. Well, this is so, so great to know. Um, Dr. Bemonte, thank you so much for explaining everything and, you know, helping people kind of see just some of these other views and angles that they probably have not heard from their doctor at all. So I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you. You're welcome, Ina. Anytime. It's my pleasure. And for those that want to connect with you, how can they find you? Uh, they can visit our website, which is New York City Thyroid Doctor. Um, they can also visit the main website, which is health-truth.com. Perfect. And I'll post all of this in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thyroid can certainly be complex. And in Emily's case, her levels were not off enough to warrant medication, but they were certainly not optimal. In addition to her blood work, I also ran a hair test and saw very high calcium levels, low sodium and potassium, and slightly elevated copper and low zinc. This type of pattern was not surprising to me, and the high calcium levels with low sodium and potassium are indicative of overall weaker adrenals and thyroid when analyzed from a mineral perspective. The high copper was antagonizing her zinc, which also made sense as zinc is a needed mineral for conversion of thyroid hormones from T4 into T3. In addition to lifestyle and mindfulness, as well as a balanced whole food diet, I put Emily on Thyroxyl from Apex to help support the thyroid overall. I also added in betaine HCL as low sodium levels in the hair are often indicative of low stomach acid and betaine actually helps with stomach acid so we can better digest our food, especially our animal proteins. I then used B Supreme to get the needed B vitamins with an additional extra B1 for the calcium balance. I saw a very off-balance ratio of calcium to magnesium, and based on her results, I put her in 600 milligrams of calcium glycinate. This is a fairly high dose, but her calcium-magnesium ratio was almost at 18, where it ideally needs to be around 7, so she really needed it. Plus, I know that she had issues with constipation, and magnesium could be very helpful for that as well. After two months on this protocol, her bowels were moving and her energy was slightly improved. We then added 60 milligrams of zinc, which again is a higher dose, but we were using that short term to help push out the excess copper that she had based on her specific results. I then also started her on adrenal cortex to help support her adrenals. Four months after beginning the protocol, her energy was a ton better, her bowels were moving every day, and she raved that her skin and hair were glowing and she was losing a lot less hair than before. We retested the hair because she was on higher dosages of some nutrients and it's not meant to be long-term. And so with the retest, we saw her calcium to magnesium ratio was better, but still not optimal. So based on that, I stopped the B1 as we no longer needed it, but kept the magnesium until the next retest. The zinc to copper ratio was also much better. So we were able to stop the extra zinc as she no longer needed it. We then retested her thyroid blood work and her levels are now all in the optimal range. Woohoo! I love seeing these types of results. So we were both 
thrilled, of course. If Emily sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them. And be sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. As always, when it comes to your health issues, please, please don't give up. There are so many things that you can do and so many angles that you can address it from. The answers are out there and there really is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you on the next episode of Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.